So today's guest is Seamanth Johari. Seamanth brings 21 years of experience in healthcare investments, innovation, business consulting, and strategy. Seamanth leads HealthX Capital, one of the leading early stage healthcare dedicated VCs in South and Southeast Asia. In his previous assignments, Seamanth has had diverse experience across business consulting at Ernst & Young, strategy and transformation at uh, Nokia Solutions Networks, uh, sorry, Nokia Solutions and Networks and IT Consulting at Tata Consultancy Services, TCS. Seamanth is a graduate of the Indian School of Business with an executive education from Barclay Haas and Rikanti Business School in Tel Aviv. He has a bachelor's in engineering from the Birla Institute of Technology, India. Seamanth, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Joe. Uh, pleasure to be on this podcast. Thanks very, very much for coming. So this uh, podcast, Seamanth, is generally about giving our viewers um, who may be aspiring entrepreneurs or even existing entrepreneurs some idea of the journeys uh, of our guests to how they got where they currently are. Um, and we always find that it's best to start at the beginning part of the career because quite often that is where some of the seeds are laid or the foundations laid for that drive to go towards entrepreneurialism. So um, if that's okay, would you mind just outlining what the early part of your career looked like? Sure, sure. It'll be my pleasure. Um, so as, as I recall, you know, when um, I started my career with uh, um, Tata Consulting Services, um, I was an engineer uh, from the Birla Institute of Technology, Mesra Rachi. Um, which was in Jharkhand. And um, in those days, I think we had uh, a, a fairly common path to go into software or, you know, usually one became a doctor and went the, the other way. So we did engineering. We got uh, through a software company, TCS, and um, there used to be a, a joke, trespassers will be recruited in those days. Uh, <laughs> so these the software companies used to come... Uh, and higher by the dozens. And uh, my first job was, was into software. I, I must admit, I, I realized fairly early on that I was a miserable failure at it. Um, what what made you, know, you think that? Uh, the fact that I was thrown in the server room um, to keep the computers warm and the servers warm um, showed amply that, you know, they didn't uh, trust my software making skills. Um, and I had uh, zero interest in sort of trying to do that. As much as I tried, um, I, I didn't really do well. But then what also happened is in the process, I think our own personalities and, and our own aspirations lead you in a certain path. Uh, and within the software thing, you know, they, they had another opportunity, which was into um, um, software testing and stuff, which was the lower uh, perceived cousin of of yeah. software coding. And I think uh, I did, I was creative inherently. So I, I started developing a lot of test cases, automating those test cases um, and, and sort of crunching the intervals in, in terms of uh, letting those software patches get released sooner uh, by catching more bugs uh, sooner. So more bugs and faster. 
um that was the underlying part and so that sort of led to a very interesting um um sort of growth within where i was in tcs although i still knew that this is not what i wanted to do um, um and i was very keen to get into uh, a b school and isp happened after that um so that was that was you know the first sort of uh, um job experience that i had a uh, couple of things came out of it basically uh, one you know i was creative so i should sort of double down on it um second i was a people person so um more i was actually uh, sent on site to deal with the client and um look at his expectations project manage and so on and so forth so i kind of enjoyed that um and then third that you know i need something more creative um uh, or more diverse i would say um creative was one diverse was another so i need a little diversity in in what i'm doing um uh, and then that sort of came about as an opportunity when i got through isb um so isb was a great uh, as cliched as it sounds uh, it it did change my life um because of uh, all of you fantastic people who came there from very different uh, walks of life um and that diversity in isb i still remember um opened my mind a lot um yeah. and and that fearlessness to tread completely untread paths uh, uncharted territories and you know that your mind, you yourself get opened up to such uh, such diversity that it starts seeming that oh it might be feasible you know for one of us to actually go into those paths yeah. i think that was my biggest learning uh, from isb when when we went there um and and tell me if i'm going too fast or you know how, no, no, how no, you're you... going perfectly fine and uh, so i think isb i i one of the biggest takeaways was the diversity and and being able to think you know where do you want to go from here um yeah in fact one of my first jobs that i got on isb was wipro myself right mm. um and uh, this was for a product development uh, job um and i think i was uh, out of the placement process uh, if i had accepted that if i re- recollect um but at the same time i remember there was ernst and young which had come to campus um i actually pursued them out of campus uh, ah, after okay. i uh, while i think um, you know my my heart actually said that look i need to be in a place where um, it's going to offer me a lot of diversity in terms of different uh, uh, um, business sectors etc and a lot of people led uh, uh, engagements and that sort of led me from the core um, my gut said look you go in for consulting you'll get a broader view or diverse uh, sort of experience and i personally did, did that, that idea develop why you were at isb then or, or was that your thinking prior to even applying for an mba no not at all not at all in at isb i was very confused um to it even till the end to be very honest uh, i was appearing for um, all sorts of uh, job opportunities which were coming mm-hmm. my way of course uh, consulting is usually very popular so yeah. i went for but i still remember i applied for itc paper boards to uh, airtel's roaming manager position to uh, i don't know the software jobs and there was a whole bunch of them right mm-hmm. um, but you know even before getting to the placement season uh, what really gave me a kick was 
something off track completely when we were doing the ELP projects, if you re- recall. Yeah. Um, the ELP projects was the first whiff of what you could do. And I let my sort of uh, creativity and aspiration lose a little bit. And there was this tiny opportunity where they wanted to do something in sports management. Mm-hmm. And here's where I actually got very attracted to um, the sports uh, arena. In fact, that's still something I am saving up in my belly to go after mm. at some point in my life, in my next gig. Mm. Um, um, so LeBron were, James, you might become his agent or something like that, maybe. <laughs> I don't know. But you know what uh, got me into sports thing is that there was a guy uh, camping in Hyderabad called Billy Rao who was helping Chandrababu Naidu actually okay. set up uh, what was uh, um, the IMG Academy's yeah. equivalent in India called IMG Bharata. And uh, they had actually signed up all these stadiums and all sporting facilities, etc., to scout talent very early on and then make it a feeder system to develop, um, uh, you know, sports people in mm-hmm. India uh, to the caliber of, let's say, the Pete Sampras and Agassiz yeah. as they do now. So I loved that idea. And, you know, um, basically that, that uh, made me get a project uh, for ELP myself, use my networks and sort of got the first sports consulting project from MRF. Oh, great. Um, yeah, so who, they, who, they they're us, very involved in racing, actually, aren't they? Which my, my son was involved in for quite a while. Oh, okay, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they gave us a two-pronged uh, problem to solve. One was the IMG Pace Foundation, which is where finest uh, pace bowlers came out of for mm-hmm. India. Uh, Javagal, Srinath to, you know, others. And uh, there was the MRF uh, sports uh, sports um, division, which was the, the manufacturer for all these cricketing equipment and stuff. So they wanted to make the academy, uh, the Pace Foundation, self-sustainable. That was one. And two, they wanted to expand the sporting division, which was the equipment maker. So that was a fantastic project. And we got a couple of us guys who went cracking on it, how to solve this. Um, it was a classic uh, business expansion, business plan kind of exercise on one end and uh, making a a foundation into a financially sustainable entity. And then we had to submit these findings and walk them through the MRF guys. Fascinatingly, you know, interesting for me and it it appealed to me over most other usual stuff. So, you know, it it planted that flag somewhere, a post-it saying that, ah, um, you can go for such um, widely different sort of uh, things and it really appealed to me. So when Ernst & Young came and I read a little bit about it, I actually did not qualify for for the interview on campus. And uh, when I didn't get it, that night was very changing for me. I realized that why am I feeling so hurt about it? And, and, and I closed myself in a room and had a lot of um, beers uh, that night. And I said, <laughs> Why am I feeling bad? And and then it it just dawned upon me. Look, I think it's because this is probably where I wanted to start off with saying exposing myself to a lot of different things. That's who I am, perhaps, and that's perhaps where I'll fit. So that was a time when I decided. Look, I should actually um, uh, go for consulting, and um, I, I trailed uh, Ernst and Young, stalked them. Uh, off campus and 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 sort of uh, flew down to Delhi. Actually, I took my interview on Go- in Goa with a whole bunch of thirty five ISBNs around beaches. And really? I remember in, in on one beach, I actually took an interview call 
with a beer in hand um, i shouldn't be saying this to others but um uh, it was fun uh, and and i flew down to delhi took this interview with a partner and he said listen what do you want to do should i you know do you you're from it and do you want to go back to it and we have a wing which does that um or we have a very small office uh, in hyderabad which will you know which uh, does healthcare consulting so i said healthcare oh i've never done anything in healthcare in life um it's a breath of fresh air so that attracted me to be honest um just the way sports attracted me yeah. if you see it. so you actually you, you did not fear doing something different you were attracted to it yes i was attracted to it i'd say yeah. even um, and this is a little bit unorganized uh, but I, i'll say even in tcs you know most people went for the usually popular stuff like java and um, yeah. c++ and stuff i actually picked up something which people probably just balked about it was called lotus notes Yeah, and I uh, remember <laughs> so i chose lotus notes because uh, i think i found uh, where, where they're going to apply lotus scripting and lotus notes was they were building this e governance platform for the government which actually um shrunk the decision making uh, from 22 different steps into six steps you just imagine the amount of impact that would have had on governance and chandrababu naidu was leading this so i said okay i'm going to go for the impact and um, you know join the lotus scripting group um there were only two or three of us who raised our hands to do that the others went the other way so i think it if you look at that you know um they it's been the odd ones the odd opportunities the not so um, sort of explored opportunities which i went for and uh, impact was one uh, which sort of drove me and uh, i think uh, just going by the gut so healthcare came as a opportunity as a breath of fresh air and uh, i went into it um, and uh, i think it went very well with my personality that look this is not everyone's cup of tea uh, to go and be thrown into a, a a less known sort of sector a less known uh, practice in ernst and young and you go take it um, and there is chaos along with it which i loved actually to be honest and that's where i think the seed of just going for uh, you know unknown stuff uh, yeah. exploring more came about and i loved my experience at ernst and young and ernst and young was a beautiful experience i would say i think just to highlight there was um, i think three or four things that i did one was healthcare so i was helping them build the practice itself um, uh, so for ernst and young you know whether it's marketing ernst and young for healthcare getting more clients etc so doing the marketing piece of it and business consulting piece of it in healthcare that was one but in those days the beauty of uh, consulting was that you were not so verticalized so my partner was also the head of business advisory services and those days we used to consult on everything and anything before the world got and the clients got wiser and said listen i need proper experts to tell me what to do but we used to consult on anything and everything um and and an example of that was um, i got my first um, main project at ernst and young was vibrant gujarat uh you remember mr modi being the chief yeah. minister of gujarat and doing vibrant yeah. gujarat we were the first consultants to get uh, uh, appointed to go and do foreign investment promotion for the state of gujarat so it was the country's india's largest state sponsored marketing program and uh, ernst and young had never done anything like this nor did any of our consultants other big four 
This was the first time such a product was being launched. This involved going to Gujarat, getting posted to Ahmedabad, and basically drawing up the blueprints of how this whole vibrant Gujarat will lift off, how will it get operated, how will it get pursued to finally deliver what was all those big numbers that get talked about that so many MOUs were signed worth X thousand crores and so on and so forth. Um, so it was a massive foreign investment promotion program. And I was a complete rookie who, by the way, there were big expectations uh, at Ernst & Young. Yeah, uh, I can imagine. There is, there is this character coming from ISB. So ISB had a big halo, I must say. And that kind of kept me running also saying, oh my God, these guys are actually expecting a lot. Um, and I'm just a normal guy who has just done some coding and, you know, after ISB have yeah. come into this thing. Pretty much uh, sink or swim. Oh yeah, sink or swim. I, it was a reputation, it was fear, it was everything playing through my mind. Um, Did you still... have any uh, mentorship in, in that role? Because obviously that can seem pretty daunting. You know, like, as you just said, you, you your experience up until that point is, you know, doing uh, on a completely different sort of life cycle, IT testing and so on. And now suddenly you're being uh, tasked with these major, uh, you know, policy type issues um, or helping implement policy type issues. It's quite, quite a big Not thing. It. I mean, do you feel the role of mentors in this is important or what, did you not really have that kind of mentorship available? I think I'll choose the latter. Uh, now that you ask me, there wasn't much mentorship available. Right. Uh, this was an important project for Ernst & Young because for business advisory services, this was the single largest uh, project by revenue uh, by itself. And uh, this was a rookie team which was deputed there, to be honest. Um, you know, right from um, going to Ahmedabad and... Uh, um, uh, right from growing to, from uh, to Ahmedabad, getting posted there, searching for an office next to the Sabarmati River, and going to the secretariat for the first time, which uh, was uh, you know never done this before, and um, practically the first day I was literally uh, kicked out of the secretariat, saying, "Hey, I thought you guys are here to do the job for us, and you're asking us the questions," um, and I was like, "Ouch." So I need to be more prepared. And, and that's where the question of mentorship came. I think uh, some of our leaders had uh, um, sent us there. Of course, there was supervision. Um, but a large part of it, Joe, was uh, just figuring your way out. And there was uh, less margin for error, um, given that you were uh, talking to a state government, which was impatient, which was hungry to get this done, led by Mr. Modi at that time. Um I think it was a fascinating experience uh, at the end of it because we were able to put a team. We were able to identify the priority sectors for the state. Um, and it started with this. It seemed like more like a normal consulting project where we are churning out reports and stuff uh, and saying, okay, these are the sectors we go after. These are the growth rate, blah, blah, blah. And then came the operational part of it that how do you actually attract foreign investments now that you've identified the sectors? So then came the fun part and we said, all right, um, here's the blueprint um, of the world. This is the world map. Which are the hotspots for automobiles? So we said Detroit, Stuttgart, and so on and so forth. Which are the hotspots for pharma? We said, okay, US, uh, you know, Germany again, um, a little bit of India and so on and so forth. So we just 
put all these flags on the world map and we said all right we got to get the right people to go to these uh, sector specific uh, zones to attract foreign investments in the identified sectors and uh, we have to have content which is standardized to to go and pitch which is standardized for gujarat uh, but then we have to have a customized content which actually uh, highlights the opportunities which are there uh, not just at sector level when i would give uh, uh, you know uh, complete credit to the government of gujarat at that point uh, mr modi he actually pointed out saying why don't when somebody raises his hand saying i'm ready to explore this you should actually be able to give which specific opportunities are available to actually come and invest and be prepared that who's the indian jv counterpart and who's the government representative both who are ready to partner with you when you actually raise your hand as an investor so, so that was the, like under the foreign direct investment rules it was very much a situation of you would invest with a lead indian partner is that right yeah so uh, that was correct because most foreign investors coming into india for the first time would not like to come in on their own plus i think our policies also did not allow 100% foreign ownership yeah um, so they required a, yeah that that time so uh, they required an indian partner so what the government was doing is pulling out all stops saying all right if you do get interested then we have all the other things taken care of and who will come to the table with you for which specific opportunities and i still remember we made excel sheets to say calculate the irrs and stuff for each project it was down to that that detail and we were ready with all this and where we needed to go with which people came the next part so we actually got um, industry captains from different sectors together charted out the whole itinerary and then it became almost like i, I start questioning myself hey, am i a travel agent of sorts which is actually you know putting all this together that who goes where and stuff like that but it wasn't any mom and pop it, it was like uh, people from british petroleum people yeah. from uh, you know uh, 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 the infrastructure side um, there was i still remember i had gone one of my best trips was with mr kamal nanavati who was um, uh, who was the head of reliance petrochemicals and mukesh ambani's right hand man Uh, actually mr ambani was supposed to travel on that trip but he deputed kamal nanavati um, and we went with him and uh, i went with the um, the the petroleum secretary um, um, at that time um, and we went and camped in you know new york houston uh, we sat in the board rooms of companies like exxon mobil oil just imagine i mean this was yeah this was mind blowing experience and cool. this was here there was one mr pandey from ongc who flew down separately sitting in three, you know uh, exxon mobil oil uh, 360 billion dollar company's headquarters and we were discussing the national exploration policy 5 at that point um it was it was just fascinating and then there was the first time i met a senator who actually patted us saying Hey, you guys! I know you're Ernst and Young COO, and I didn't know this is happening that you're attracting foreign investments coming here all the way to US. And uh, you know, it was just a humbling experience to say um, I didn't re- realize um, what what kind of access um, I had at that point in time. Um, I think that that was the biggest learning. If I look back to my life, you know, and this is something they don't teach us at any B school. Also, yeah. how important. um and how to recognize a uh, network and keep it cultivated uh, 
you know, I, I never knew. Basically, I used to go to Gautam Adani's office quite often uh, through that vibrant Gujarat thing. I had no clue who, you know, how big he would become, of course. Uh, but um, And there was Kamal Nanavadi who probably offered uh, one of us uh, a job um, to take on his Russian operations uh, at that time when Reliance was expanding. I said, well, you know, I'm part of Ernst & Young. It's a blue chip MNC company. Why should I go to Reliance, you know? But today I think, oh my God, the guy was actually offering us an entrepreneurial thing to, um, you know, head off a, a particular SBU of his in, in Russia where the, he had no presence. Look at what you'd made a killing. I mean, we've gone the other way, right? We have all gone through corporates and then we've done our own journeys. But you could have actually gone that way, but actually what, what what's more conditioned uh, in, in a lot of us is, Oh, well, um, we were conditioned and trained to go for the best job with the best MNC corporate. And that's what I looked up to at that point in time. And um, uh, it was a fascinating experience. So that was the second block, healthcare, uh, foreign investment promotion. And the third piece was a bunch of other stuff. Uh, uh, one of, uh, I think it was a little bit of technology. So I went deputy to cable and wireless as MD, as a second D. Uh, from Ernst & Young, uh, you know, and, and try to make his plan how to make Cable & Wireless India more attractive uh, as a global sort of destination for other uh, telecoms and stuff like that. And then did a, a crazy project called uh, putting up an Institute of Creativity in India, which was sponsored by Kapil Sibal uh, from the Congress government. Um, and I was like, Institute of Creativity, why? What does it even mean? And then I realized it was a very fascinating project. They were actually thinking, look at the thought process, all right? It, uh, the thought process was to make India a center for creation of intellectual property. That's where we, so if there were three T's, um, you know, technology, talent, and the third piece was, I think, tolerance or um, um, one of those things. But I remember we had technology, we had talent. Uh, what we didn't have is actually um, IP, uh, generated in India. So true innovation, you know, uh, the intellectual property piece. Um, and we, I got to compare that intellectual property indexes and stuff with US, with Israel, with uh, China. And we've, we were far behind. And so that is why that need government was actually coming up with saying, all right, um, this is something we need to bridge. And how do you do that? Um, so it, it, it further attracted me to this word innovation, which was a buzzword of that time, but uh, overkilled, abused word. Uh, but then I got deeper into it. Is what is innovation? And it, it left, uh, again, uh, that post-it in my head at some point uh, that, that it had to be revisited. And today I am there. Um, you know, So that those were like uh, some other stuff, government advisory, technology and stuff. And then there was foreign investment promotion, there was healthcare. Yeah, I mean, um, I, I think that's incredibly interesting because obviously through each of those blocks, um, there were there were primary, there was primary experience that you gained in the actual thing that you were doing, but also um, kind of cascading skills, if you like, around things like stakeholder management, project management, um, you know, how to manage a dialogue around a, towards a particular end. So extremely interesting. Now, having built up that set of skills and that range of experiences, um, what led you to uh, to sort of focus in back on the healthcare sector? 
Yeah, good question. Actually, this was a time when, you know, I was actually actually uh, going through a lot of sectors and it made me question myself, you know, a little bit of uh, my analytical brain took over and said, well, you've been meandering and enjoying what you're doing. This breath of fresh airs kept going, you know, different projects, diversity. Um, so I actually said, Let, let's do a check uh, review, you know, uh, what am I doing and where do I want to go from here? And I figured that, look, I'm a technology guy. I was an engineer. I, I went into software. Um, really, I need to verticalize somewhere if I have to, you know, even consult somebody and advise somebody or grow myself as a professional. I, I should be verticalizing. And that uh, thought sort of pushed me saying, okay, what I guess I took a safer bet, which is it wasn't intuitive. It was counterintuitive. And this was mainly by my self-assessment and brain that I took a decision. And I. it was an opportunistic call, but I. it was driven by the fact that I should verticalize. And I, I took a safer bet to verticalize, which was technology, which was, um, and, and I got an opportunity with Nokia. Um, Nokia uh, Siemens Network, it was called at that point. Now it's Nokia Solutions Network. Uh, that's the only Nokia that's left now. Um, mm. So this division was, you know, on 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 the networking side, right? Um, this is not the telecom um, uh, marketing entities, uh, the main telecom operator uh, side. This is the networking side: Ericsson, Huawei, Alcatel, Lucent, Nokia, Siemens Networks. These were yeah. the four kings uh, at that time. And uh, at that point, you know, Nokia just married Siemens to take on the mites of uh, Huawei and Ericsson. Ericsson was hitting them, uh, you know, at the market share level and uh, Huawei was eating at the profitability level. And these guys were sandwiched in between. So they had just married and sort of post-merger integrations were happening and all of that. Here is where they decided to shift the headquarters of services, which was a seven and a half billion euro business, the headquarters of that to be shifted from Munich to Gurgaon. It was a huge decision, right? Um, and uh, here you had like, you know, one third of that global leadership of the services business coming from Finland and Munich. And you'd see all these Finns and, um, you know, uh, Germans actually make their way into Gurgaon also. Some of the leadership shifted and a uh, lot of people, you know, coming in and out. So I took this um, more as an opportunistic bet. And one more thing attracted me is the chaos. That, that you're building something from a start, like, you know, Nokia and Siemens taking on these two biggies. And there is chaos and there was an office set up to make sure that how do you do this in the best way possible? How do you transform this organization, make it leaner, make it smarter? Um, how do you change the, uh, the, the, the power circles and power equations in the organization to make it actually deliver uh, much more meaningfully and engage the customer. Very rewarding role, to be honest. I mean, this is what a true blue strategy role, as we say in yeah. in, in B schools were. Um, um, and here, there was a sadistic pleasure that I had was that here we were part of the global strategy team. So half my team used to sit in Munich and half half my team was in Gurgaon and we were a crack team which was formed from different uh, consulting organizations. I was, I think... Uh, the wild card in that team because I had this very varied experience. 
um and then there were people from Oliver Wyman who was from you know telecom there was people from Accenture who was who had more enterprise sales um software kind of thing there was Balu our own classmate who also joined from uh, uh, i think it was uh, in those days Satyam he had come from Satyam um so we it was a crack team that joined uh, this thing and we had a whole thing about you know trying and making the strategy for Nokia Siemens networks at a global level um, what kind of team size were you we were about five or six guys um, okay reporting into a, a fairly successful young turk um who used to sit out of uk uh, i don't know if you know him amit dingra uh, who became i've heard the name i think yeah, yeah. He's been an old hat uh, at Telecom, and uh, so Amit uh, from London Business School had uh, actually picked us up, and uh, we we had been given this task of uh, trying to figure out, you know, how do you change these rules? Um, we used to do some fantastic stuff, like you know, if we have Genox and Gurgaon and Noida, and you know, you have these in Beijing and Shanghai, but you know, there's a cost arbitrage that's playing out. Why don't we just cross out these functions? and actually just transfer this out here and it makes um, so much of a difference for the company right so but we were touching nerves in the company of course um, doing doing so uh, we were talking about uh, global service delivery centers which were essentially um, not you know we were trying to copy what cisco had done what ibm and had done uh, putting up these common shared services centers um from where we will do delivery as a global service delivery kind of teams rather than having regional teams which have yeah. overlaps you know but that also means taking a whole bunch of power out of the the leaders out, out in those regions so really um, whoever heads those gsdcs um you know would be powerful and then suddenly the region becomes less powerful so uh, we it was a fascinating project i think um, did it for a couple of years to be honest but one thing i realized was that i took that decision with with my mind and not with my heart and not with my gut and so far if you saw all the dots i'd always jumped in in something very intuitively and uh, what made sense to me in terms of impact in terms of you know diversity and so on um and i realized look i'm not connecting with this stuff i can't figure out the 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 impact of what i'm doing you know i'm talking radio products base stations and all of that and ultimately it's getting some convenience and things like that and again i was very far from um you know the the real sales and all of that this is how much strategy one would one do so i i figured what i had in ernst and young and all was actually so much more exciting um and i could see people in front of me i could talk uh, about things how this would impact you i could see it and then i decided look i still have to verticalize but this is not it this is not it and that's where i come to answer your question jo i took a call look no matter what i think i loved my healthcare stint at um in in ernst and young in 2005 2006 and that i was now in nokia i was in 2008 um and i said listen if i have to do the something i do it for the next 10 15 years that let me not sort of stretch it beyond that but minimum 10 years to 15 years i should be able to do one vertical now and i think it just came by my gut and i said uh, i really enjoyed my healthcare thing i got you know i i consume information voraciously um on healthcare um i haven't done that for telecom as much or for software so let me just take a jump and i follow my gut 
I started searching for some stuff, uh, both, and I actually asked myself, what else? And I sports came again uh, into my mind. So I started searching for opportunities and I interviewed with a couple of sports management companies also, um, trying out, you know, just my luck. Uh, but again, that fearlessness was there that maybe I can get it. Um, and then so happened, Apollo Hospitals happened. Um, so one of my ex-clients in Ernst & Young, you know, I wrote to them and I said, look, I'm in this position in life where I'm a former consultant. Um, do you have something interesting for me? And that's when one of the, uh, you know, family uh, who runs Apollo, uh, one of the sisters, their four sisters, one sister actually came back saying, see, Mant, look, we are scaling very well as hospitals. We are, uh, we have clinical excellence, but what we don't have is any kind of research or innovation. And uh, would that be of interest to you? And uh, to be honest, Joe, it was a leap of faith. Um, I had no clue what an Indian um, hospital system looks like from the inside. Uh, but what appealed to me is uh, the fact that, uh, you know, innovation, that word and that post-it came alive, you know, from the Creativity Institute project that in Ernst & Young, which I did. Um, and, and the healthcare parts, which the, for foreign investment promotion or the, you know, the projects that I did, um, I think those post-its came alive and I was like, why not? It is the biggest hospital chain in, in India. Um, and it, they're expecting me to do something on innovation. They actually didn't tell me anything, how to do or what to do. Typically coming from the corporate sector, especially from a mecca of processes, Nokia, I expected everything to be defined. And yeah. they said, I, you know, we'd love you to figure it out. I was like, yeah, excuse me, figure it out. <laughs> what, so were you brought in, you know, alone to build this research and innovation team? So you effectively had to um, define the problem yourselves and what your objective was, build the team and then aim towards that. It, you were handling this from scratch really. so how I got into this was they, they I inherited what was the clinical trials uh, team in Apollo uh, the cl clinical trials uh, business unit basically um, what they used to do is basically conduct clinical studies for all the drugs uh, in the world uh, most of the uh, major sort of pharma manufacturers before you know are taking out a drug they go through clinical studies right those clinical studies are outsourced to uh, contract research organizations, CROs, and they are further outsourced to hospitals, which is where the uh, studies happen. Give me a second, Joe. Yeah, sure. Yeah, sorry. Um, That's my dog. That's pardon me. Um, so I think I inherited that, but with that, I inherited about 150 people spread across 12 locations in India. So that was the beautiful part. And these were all clinical researchers who used to have a network with roughly about 1,000 doctors across 12 different locations within Apollo hospitals in India. And Apollo was like fairly widespread out, right? Yeah. So wherever I traveled in these 12 places, I would actually have a team there to, you know, go and talk to. And best part was these researchers had a network with at least 1,000 of the 10,000 Apollo doctors. Now, this was all, you know, clinical validation, clinical studies of drugs, which is the most complex end of uh, medicine. You know, these are uh, compounds that you're talking about, which work or not. And it's a fairly regimented process. It's, uh, it's got 
got ethics, it's got uh, regulation along with it and all of that. Is this so only actually, for Indian pharmaceuticals companies' products or global? No, it's global. So 80% of the clinical studies that we were doing in Apollo, they were all uh, from international clinical studies, which had one leg in India with one sub-leg in Apollo. So they, they actually break up the clinical study and give it to number of hospitals uh, and then collect data from these number of hospitals, you know, add it up, make the report and see the analysis of that data saying that, okay, is this drug working? Uh, yeah. Is it safe? Uh, what is the dosage, et cetera, et cetera. There are various stages of clinical studies and stuff. And you so could I be working with Bayer, with Novartis, with uh, oh, yeah. you know, whoever. Absolutely. So my okay. world became suddenly, I, I got thrown at the deeper end of the uh, spectrum, not really the typical healthcare services delivery of the hospital. I, I used to sit in the hospital, but but deep end of the spectrum was this part where you're actually talking about clearing medicines, which actually go into a patient's stomach. Um, and, and you have to do this carefully, right? I mean, there is ethics involved, there is regulation involved, and there are people involved. Um, so had to be really careful and and my world became pharma companies CROs and hospitals oh by the way when I first came from Nokia to Apollo I was I was uh, I, I I was shocked to say the least because here was a green painted wall with a tube light um, whereas I was coming from a very fancy glass building in in Gurgaon and you know from Mecca of processes to Mecca of chaos completely because this was yeah. all promoted. I mean, uh, it was a very, very different um, uh, culture shock uh, for me. Uh, was like, I was in Ernst & Young, I was in Nokia, and then I go to Apollo hospitals. Um, it's very different, right? Um, just just the culture Culturally. of the organization. It, it was a homegrown company with every second person actually been there in the organization for 20 years. It's almost like a semi-government, by the yeah. way. Yeah. So, uh, I, That's I how my experience was like at BT as well, being an ex, you know, a public sector company. You know, many of the people when I joined in the late nineties, you know, a lot of people had been there for 25, 35 years, even, you know, man and boy type of uh, thing. So yeah, I understand exactly what you mean. And, uh, you know, so land up in Apollo, um, we have to define the problem to come to your uh, answer. You said, you know, did I have to define the problem? Yes, I did. Um, did I have to create a solution? Yes, I did. Um, and uh, it was all left to me. And hence, it was a weird start because I wasn't sure whether they're serious about this because they just left it to me. Um, and so I used to belittle my own, um, you know, um, sort of opportunity that I had at hand saying, all right, these guys haven't defined it, so it might not be important for them. But at the same time, you know, I had this beautiful platform that I had. And in year one, I mean, I couldn't do much. But year two, um, as things would have it, I cannot sit idle and I, I need to create something. I'm very creative. So and I'm very impatient. So what happened was there's a bunch of startups that start coming to Apollo and they come to different people, the CEO, the the family, you know, the some key doctors. They all have their networks. So some seas, some startups would come from Israel, some some would come from Singapore, some would come from the Bay Area. And all of these guys would, you know, true to Indian hospitality, we were very good at whining and dining and we would discuss these things and we would say bye-bye. 
And the poor startups, they lost out an opportunity to actually navigate through our system. We lost out an opportunity to get great disruptive innovations in our thing. And that's when my first sort of consulting hat um, came on and I said, listen, there's an opportunity here. We're losing out. So I went to the family and I said, listen, you wanted me to do something. I'm telling you the first thing we should do is land all of these innovations that you guys meet from anywhere. Just put one name up there, send it to my desk. All right, I'll be your man to figure out. Now I have the clinical validation platform. And what I'll do is I'll put a small business platform, a platform as in a small business team. All right. So I'll have a clinical commercial sort of filter which will be able to assess what is coming to us and whether it fits in, in our scheme of things in the hospital. Now, from a clinical side and from a business side, will it add value both sides? Because it had to, right? And clinical first, that whether it will be beneficial to someone, uh, the patient or the doctor. And uh, second, whether it will be uh, beneficial commercially to the hospital as well, if we bring it in. So this is what we did. And uh, when we started engaging with these uh, um, um, startups, we figured, all right, these are some of these are very interesting. We should actually, um, and they were looking for an inroad into the Indian market. Now, if you want to launch your product in the Indian market, you would need the clinical study for it. You would need an approval from us having done the clinical study. We take it to the regulator and so on and so forth. This, I thought, was a good consulting kind of an opportunity by itself. And I said, listen, we'll do the validation of your product. Because we were doing validation of the very tough uh, end of the spectrum, which are the drugs. So when somebody came with a healthcare software, I said, of course, I can do the same thing. Uh, I'll, I, it's the same regimen. It's the same people who do this. It's the same doctors who do this. So we can do this service for you. We can validate your product for you. And it meant a lot because from Asia's, one of Asia's largest hospital chains is saying this works. It means a lot because they can go back to UK or US, wherever they came from and say, so this is the data from me. Correct. And they will use it to combine it with their own study in US, which expedites their journey to get a regulatory approval, which actually bumps up their valuations, etc. And helps so them just for, for clarity, Seaman, the, the types of organization that were coming, typically, what was the sort of solution they were providing? Was it a software solution, as you say, or was it a piece of equipment? What, what was the offering generally from these types of uh, uh, organizations? Or was it, you know, across the piece? All of those. Yeah. So that, that was the beauty of it. And here's where I started my enjoying myself, right? Um, because I had a, you know, Israeli company, for example, which came and said, listen, I have something I can put under your mattress, which will look at the respiratory rate, the heart rate and oh, your mobility yeah. and uh, do so uh, continuously such that I can actually predict uh, your uh, sort of fall, detect your fall or predict if before you have a code blue event and prevent you to get into the ICU. Yeah. Something of that sort to something as a device from the US where one gentleman had come saying, this was 10 years back, you know, when he came out with a device, handheld device for self-screening of the breast for women, for breast cancers. Yeah. And using very, very sensitive uh, piezoelectric sensors to, you know, find out unusual breast density at which place in your breast. And you can do it yourself instead of actually going to a, a, a gynae and getting a clinical breast exam kind of a thing. So it yeah. was as varied as this, all right? And, and they were software pieces where, 
people had come saying, okay, can we do just your ECG? But I'll tell you what percentage blockage do you have in which vessel of your heart? I can tell you by doing an ECG. And this was a company which came in 2012 from Calgary. And 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 those guys have actually gone ahead, raised about eighty billion, eighty million dollars now. I was going to say, and did it did it work? Because that would be incredibly useful. So this was the beginning of my journey. I actually signed up with them, and we were our grand plan was we will offer an ECG as a public health thing for one dollar a person as a preventive health heart screening in India, which nobody has done before. One dollar per screen. and we'd be able to get a result which is equal to an angiogram and say that which vessel of your heart has what percentage blockage without having to do an angiogram or a ct scan which is very high cost and we would be able to do this for 1 dollar unfortunately in the process of doing so and our data was fantastic the american company actually pulled out and they said they their ceo died basically and the new ceo said i don't want anything to do with india so um i didn't sue them Yeah, I, I I didn't sue them. I didn't know uh, you can sue them. Uh, this was the beginning of my journey. So I organically learned. Uh, Joe, um, I had an opportunity here, uh, and it got exciting uh, with more startups coming our way. But the first pivot was to actually do services for them to validate their offerings, uh, which allowed them to enter Indian market and which also allowed them to go for studies uh, outside. the second pivot was around uh, saying some of these companies say listen we can't pay with startups so i couldn't charge them commercially so i said okay why don't you i'll take sweat equity in your company that's something that i learned so that's where i entered the equity world the sweat equity part and then the third piece which i learned was uh, these companies also wanted capital and there were some of them were coming and asking look i need market which apollo was i need clinical validation which i had in apollo and the third piece was capital um and the capital piece was the hardest because apollo is not trained to think um yeah. in, in investing doing risk capital business in these innovations and stuff like that it's a old organization 40 year old organization where they knew what is cash in cash out healthcare delivery services you come meet doctor consult take medicine go you know yeah um and here was a different model and my first such um um this was 2011 there were four scientists who came from us and they said we want to make a biobank i had no clue what a biobank was but when they told me that it is a physical repository of your bio samples but associated clinical data on top is available and you this will be the uh, repository which will allow you to make dozens of uh, diagnostic tests which can help in uh, personalized medicine uh, i thought 10 years in future and i said fantastic idea and actually apollo was sitting on pot loads of data and uh, physical samples which get collected every time we got ourselves pricked and gave a blood sample some of it is actually left they collect extra and they keep it uh, according to laws they keep it for 3 or 5 years something like that and in those after those years then it ceases to be a bio sample of a person then it becomes like bio waste and you actually throw it which is stupid because it has a lot of information associated with it so these but you can't you can't continue uh, at that point once it becomes bio waste the data associated with that cannot be linked to the patient can it no it cannot it okay. cannot get linked but so that's where um, you know these four scientists said we make a biobank which is financially sustainable we have seen it working in in us in greenland and so on so forth it's a beautiful thing to make and we'll become drug hunters we'll be able to crunch the time to make medicines we'll be able to make more diagnostic tests 
it appealed to me and basically we were sitting on latent value uh, and that was my first first real um, you know step towards innovation and uh, i i ran for they needed money also so this was capital this was clinical validation required also and this was commercial as well because apollo was a marketplace so this is where i fused all three and um, it took me a year to get a million dollars from apollo one year of scratching around making presentations it was as if i was one of them and um, i finally convinced the apollo uh, cfo and people to give me that 1 million dollars it was the hardest earned 1 million dollars i remember um and then i put up this company right in the back uh, of my office i had labs and stuff and i gave them labs i gave them scientists and i gave them some money and i said go you know just go with it i still remember doing bhumi poojan and stuff for that office and it was like living the life of a startup uh with without the economics of it of course uh, uh because i was helping them do so so it was like an incubator incubated uh, company then we made a couple of joint ventures happen so there was uh, i was doing phase 2 3 and 4 trials um and the phase 1 was missing and india wasn't doing phase 1 then so we thought uh, ahead of time we said let's do phase 1 also and we made a jv with quintiles the world's largest cro at that time and behold we had a jv with quintiles for phase 1 which is very very regulated uh, so we got in the best player in the market to come and inside a hospital put up a building so i got the whole building made and you know saw the lifts being put up and beautiful center out of the world like they had only three such facilities in the world cancer upsala and london and the fourth one we got made in hyderabad so we got at the on the map Uh, the architecture of this whole uh, thing was now i had phase 1 2 3 4 i had the bio bank preceding that which was more on the lab so we were actually building a whole ecosystem saying from bench to bedside how do you make the system and at the end of it we start putting genetics there was no g of genetics in apollo at that time i actually introduced it when there was no genetics in india itself like genetics was spoken for spoken about buzzwords personalized medicine was buzzwords yeah. what we did was we basically um did you remember 23 and me in us uh, 23 and me is a company which uh, did the braca test for angelina yoli no 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 i i am not aware of that so there is this thing where you know you either give your saliva sample or a blood sample all right and they can actually uh, tell you what you are more predisposed to genetically Okay, so so, so that's is it, the, a, is it a sequencing um, measurement then? Yeah, okay. So 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 the sequencing part happens later, but these are basically statistical studies which okay. allow you to you know, and there is some sequencing there of your blood, and then they compare it with the statistical models that they have and say, okay, you're more predisposed to a certain disease. So I started off this by rolling out a test by. a player called datar genetics uh, in india and um, i rolled it out across five apollos uh, saying if you're coming for your master health check get opt in for a genetic test and we will actually give you a coffee table book which tells you genetically what are you more predisposed to and hence you should be careful about xyz um, very surprising like i had my own done first time so i gave my own blood uh, for the first sample and i had my first coffee table book in apollo and i went and took it to the chairman and i showed him this is what surprised me because i was predisposed to genetically predisposed to rheumatoid arthritis and i actually had one of my siblings um, 
afflicted with rheumatoid arthritis and and then i realized oh my god look at that this is fascinating right i mean it's uh, i am genetically looks like there is a gene which is making us more predisposed so i need to be careful with whatever needs to be done so this is becoming smarter about your health if you apply it properly the um, of course there are pitfalls of rolling out such technologies because a lot of our physicians don't understand and are not trained on genetics so they don't know where to apply this on clinical information that is coming out of executive health checks yeah i can imagine there being uh, quite a bit of scope for hypochondria in situations like this you yes. see a kind of a traffic light listing of conditions that you may or may not be predisposed to um and, and that could potentially cause problems for some people oh yeah yeah it's 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 fraught with a lot of uncertainty fear risks involved you know do you even want to have that kind of information so a lot of people used to ask me what are you going to yeah. do with it now that's where it fails unless you actually address that part it fails but the beauty of it is look we dreamed we put a genetic test out there and more than that what we ended up doing after that was even more interesting jo and here's where the apollo story i'll start um, sort of culminating before i go to the next one is um talking of which got, sorry just before that uh, very quickly are you okay for time still because i realized that we're slightly going oh, yeah, out of we, time we, we ran out of time yeah so i'm okay for time uh, yeah yeah okay we, fine um and tell me if i need to go faster also no 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 that's fine i mean you know if we uh, usually the podcasts are about a, a an hour so we can go up to like an hour and a half say that's fine okay. um so we ended up going into the deeper end of the spectrum at that point in time you know i met a neurosurgeon who had come from nhs uk um and uh, he had also worked at uh, sick kids canada uh, he came back only to do research at apollo and uh, whatever he had learned and he were good guys coming to me right people scientists from us scientists from nhs um and he told me about something called liquid biopsies you know we take biopsies from tumor samples to test it and say okay what cancers so he told me about if you can take blood you can actually profile the molecular level information in the blood which tells you that what kind of if someone has cancer and what kind of cancer and i said wow that's fascinating and he said being a neurosurgeon he told me the application of it and he said imagine that you know you do a ct scan and you find something in your brain so you if you have a brain tumor suspected brain tumor you'd have to cut the skull take a physical biopsy of the brain which has a 5% morbidity or mortality associated with it and then you basically send it for a test and you wait for it but look how crude is this right i mean but if you could actually just take blood from the hand or anywhere in the body and 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 profile it using gene sequencing and stuff and actually finding out a mutation which correlates to a particular type of cancer you don't need to slit this head at all or take a biopsy it's liquid biopsy so i didn't know about this but at that time apparently joe biden had started something called cancer moonshot in the white house so it was an initiative called cancer moonshot started by the white house by joe biden because joe biden had that time he was part of the obama government and he had launched this because he had lost his son to uh, the most aggressive form of uh, brain tumors so that's where we said all right um this this gentleman neurosurgeon has something that he's got me hooked on to it this is amazing if you can do it i said can you do it i'll 
you know, I didn't have much money with me. I, I, I ran this, this business unit and I also had a foundation. So they'd given me a foundation also to do some um, deep end of research and stuff as well. So I gave him some money, I gave him some labs and I gave him my scientist and, uh, you know, did it exactly like the movies that I would just come in for budgets and milestones and stuff like that and say, hey, what's happening? Are you progressing on this? One and a half years, Joe, this guy came up with a working prototype of such a diagnostic test. He published it internationally, wow. got called to San Diego to present in the Society of Neuro-Oncology, which is the mecca of uh, neuro-onco. Um, and that's when the Apollo family took note saying, okay, now these guys are not playing. They're, it's not fun and games anymore. Like these guys are doing serious stuff. The chairman actually got 60 of our best oncologists together. We fired off a program called Precision Oncology. This is all when the world is still talking about personalized medicine, uh, precision oncology, and talking about liquid biopsies. By the way, till date, there is no company which has actually made a test for glioblastomas, the most aggressive form of brain tumors and stuff in liquid biopsies. But we started off something that was that fired the imagination of even the 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 chairman, Dr. Reddy, and, and the first family of healthcare in India. Um, I started getting calls from them saying, hey, Simant, uh, you know, we have this coromandel fertilizers chairman, and he's a dialysis patient, he's got kidney uh, problems, we can't do biopsy, you know, can we do your test, the, the liquid biopsy? I said, it's not my test, liquid biopsy, you know, but it caught on, man. I mean, so I think if somebody asked me, what did I achieve? Uh, I think I had just achieved uh, uh, breaking mindsets uh, breaking old mindsets and uh, introducing to new. And uh, at Apollo, did they, when you were evaluating all these uh, disruptive new technologies that would also uh, um, obviously help uh, Apollo as well, did you set up a new vehicle, a new organization that would incubate these these companies, these startups? And you would like, did, did you have a, an Apollo investment business? So, good question. So, here's the problem I faced. Uh, uh, we had an entity which was doing this. It was called Apollo Research and Innovations. Mm. So, which we was were, the thing that you set up, right? I, I basically inherited the clinical trials piece and yeah. I built the innovation piece and then we renamed it Apollo Research and Innovations. This is the glue accelerator, whatever you may call it, the catalyst yeah. uh, to make all of these things happen. Um, and... Uh, the capital part was missing, right? It was uh, project by project, uh, entity by entity. We also, you know, I led a deal to make my first $1 million investment into a cancer genetics company at that point. We set up three joint ventures, two in, uh, one in umbilical cord blood banking, one in a phase one trial uh, unit with quintiles. And um, there was a third uh, um, uh, JV that we set up. We incubated this biobank company. We we invested in a genetics company. We started off what was um, Apollo's first um, uh, telemedicine platform. Um, we had, so we went digital also. And we were far ahead of our time, actually, to be honest. Um, and the money part, the capital part was all project by project organically. We didn't have a vehicle. That's where actually... Um, my my next site went to and i said this is way too tough if it takes a year to get a million dollars or yeah. you know get it's way too tough i have to have a vehicle to do it i need to have some so the first time i went to them i said i want an innovation office with 5 crore rupees they said no i said the second time i went to them i asked for 5 million dollars they said no 
the third time by by now i was speaking to other people and my first backer was actually from the most unexpected quarters it was an israeli gentleman i owe it to him uh, and my trips to israel actually i i went for a like like it said you know i i I've done a course uh, economics of corporate R&D I found it very in- intriguing and I went to Tel Aviv for the first time and I got um, exposed to all these Israeli greats like really the greats the guy who, who were in the defense committees to all of these how they have made technology uh, uh, air force technology into a pill cam uh, for healthcare to you know they've done some wonderful stuff uh, on other innovations um and how much value they derive out of such innovations which is pure brain power and intellectual property and then they reinvest all that money to spawn another three startups and i think the third pillar of israel they say is 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 the mna or the in, you know innovation part of it it's called the what innovation nation right um um startup nation sorry um and that's changed everything and and one gentleman called israel markov who who's like ratan tata of israel he's he, he was the global ceo of teva the world's largest generics pharma company he basically uh, i was a young guy i i cockily told him that none of your israeli products will sell in india so he just smiled and he called me to israel and i didn't know whether i should go or not by the way um i did take that trip and uh, he spent 3 days with me and he said listen i like your idea we we need some money for this kind of a thing and there's something called you know there are funds to do this and i'll back you and stuff like that so we should you should be doing this basically and he called up the apollo family and said this guy's got a interesting idea that's when apollo also took note and said okay there's a big guy calling up and he there seemed to be some smoke out here anyways they were very sort of you know excited about all the things that we were doing on on the ground um so this came the capital part of it and began my journey i start talking to people and then as things happened yeah jo i was in singapore talking on a conference um um here uh, and and somebody one startup who i was helping a singaporean startup um he introduced me to jungle ventures which is a big uh, tech uh, vc um they were not so big that time when i met them uh, this was 2016 i met them for a coffee meeting 20 minutes just randomly organized and we got excited they wanted to get into healthcare investing but they didn't have any background and i wanted to make a fund i didn't have any background in that and they said let's make something it was as random as that let's make something you know we just shook hands and we got up 2016 it took me one year to convince apollo which has never ever invested in any fund in their 40 years um it took me one year but they got convinced and they were my cornerstone anchor investors um they agreed to uh, pack a decent check in my fund um and then jungle ventures basically which is the other vc fund they said fine we'll back you as well we'll help you raise the rest of the fund so that's how it came about um and and then i went ahead and uh, for first time funds it's not it's very rare to get institutional capital i think what really helped me is uh, my own background and experience yeah. in apollo and uh, apollo's backing itself um and of course then i was able to get people like japan medical data corporation um infocom japan which is a healthcare it company enterprise singapore which is a government of singapore um uh, arm uh, for uh, ventures and creating startup ecosystems they backed me um as well as um, uh, vadwani foundation in the us um to to a couple of others so the beauty part was that we were able to i i was never in i didn't know v and c of vc 
um i was never interested in financial services but my <laughs> my <laughs> so my passion for healthcare uh, and uh, i think innovation in general um led me here in pursuit of saying all right now i want to uh, you know get this capital piece sorted because i've seen the other two the clinical validation and this um, the commercialization piece but capital is something so that brought me saying you know we should build a platform which has smart connected capital instead of just capital capital is abundant but smart connected capital is not um which means you can bring more value in terms of to healthcare startups and so on and so forth so to to and be then, clear simon at this stage then the beginning of this capital piece and the idea of um setting up is essentially a venture fund is this still um owned by your under the auspices of apollo at this stage no 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 uh, apollo is just one of the investors okay. so they were nice okay. enough, they were nice enough to uh, not hog uh, the vc and uh, they've been a fantastic lp to me uh, they haven't done this ever in their life like um, so you know so you, that was the point when you started after the um the israeli interaction that was when you realized this could be something and you acquired support for it and that's when you stepped away from apollo that is that is correct and okay um, okay sir uh, the 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 part where in fact you know some some of my partners tell me that it's it's a hard thing to pull off uh convincing your own employer to give you money and then also exit from that employer and take up another opportunity um i didn't see it as a achievement but i realized later that yes it was a achievement um to 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 be able to get a strategic hospital chain to invest in you it's not happened it's not happened even now uh to be honest um, no hospital has invested in a fund and a hospital backed healthcare fund it was completely absent uh and the reason why we put it in singapore is the reason uh, both india and southeast asia um you know uh, are are going through similar conditions uh, right now and early stage uh, investors in healthcare there are practically it was none like they are generalist investors um there is one big healthcare private equity investor but vc healthcare investing early stage nothing nothing at all so and there's a reason to it it's a very tricky um space to operate in uh, on its own you know it's always good because we are risk averse in asia um, relatively speaking um so people like to spread their bets and go for generic funds um us and china have actually graduated uh, us china and europe have graduated to uh, appreciate sector specific funds and uh, i think uh, we were we are pioneers in that sense that we made a early stage dedicated healthcare fund in asia uh, india and southeast asia is where i invest in early stage and um, you know that there became began a journey of uh, venture capital mm. um, you know people still say that you hardly come across as a vc uh, because uh, I, you know what still excites me it's actually building some of these companies rather yeah. than sort of the vc part of it um, investing in returns uh, of course that's an important part uh, without which these companies won't grow but i've grown as a investor uh, but actually what i still beat for is uh, really creating that impact from these companies and some of them are really exciting i mean yeah give me one example homage uh, which is one of my best in my portfolio it's a 
it's one of the best asian uh, home care services companies um and they've literally uberized home care and this is um, you know with your app with your technology if you are in us but you want somebody to take care for your parents somebody actually who is well equipped and experienced to deliver a specific service that you've asked for only those people will be chosen um, shortlisted and one person will choose the job and it gets sent to your home gets delivered you'll get to see everything that's being happening with you know what services are being delivered to your parents and so on and so forth so a beautiful company it's grown to about 30 million dollars of revenue and um, in four countries now um, similarly we had done one investment in india which is stand plus which is actually aggregating emergency response in india you know how varied that is uh you know you call up you don't know what's going to come turn up you know what kind of vehicle what kind of people are they skilled enough what kind of equipment in that these guys have made you know they have a meme they say indians get groceries in 8 minutes we'll get you an ambulance in 12 minutes so they are actually uberizing ambulances um so that we don't have to go from point a to point b he has his own fleet which he operates and he also operates the fleet of hospitals as well so if there is a uh, ambulance in the hospital he'll take it out quickly he'll handle yeah. the call center he'll handle kick off the ambulance manage it completely with their whole technology uh, platform uh, if not then he'll send the nearest ambulance from his own fleet to actually uh, fetch the patient to the hospital which you want to go to so it's a beautiful uberization of uh, uh, emergency responses so you know stuff like that uh, which is more business model innovation kind of thing but is making clear impact and that's really that drives me or stuff like which will blow you away completely you know i've invested in a company called breath diagnostics which basically analyzes your one breath you just blow exhale and through your breath this is called breath biopsy loosely so i talked about liquid, liquid biopsy, biopsy. there's biopsy solid biopsy there's liquid biopsy and now i'm talking about breath biopsy loose term to be used but basically you assess the air that i blow and you can know that a person actually has a type of a cancer and if you can do this principally for one cancer you can do it for other cancers so my dream is at some point if this company succeeds and this is backed by mayo clinics by the way um, no mom and pop it's like mayo clinic backing this company um if this comes through imagine you're going for a executive health check and you just blow one breath of air and they'll be able to actually find out whether you actually have cancer on a preventative kind of screening uh, technology Absolutely. rather than find, finding it when you actually have cancer why do that right so these are things that we are investing in and it uh, drives me to sort of go about it i love what i do now i have found uh, my calling i guess and um, i think what i want to do is a bigger fund now that's what i'm in the process of doing um a bigger fund and um, i think do it in healthcare and the next gig is going to be in climate so um, climate and healthcare those are the two things that i that i plan to do now that's absolutely amazing and, and this is actually technically your first entrepreneurial venture right but it seems from your your career as being employed that quite a lot of those roles were quite entrepreneurial anyway so you were you were you were sort of prepared very well by the kind of briefs that you were given you were starting things usually or massively developing things from from consulting all the way through to um your stint with apollo so by the time you 
came to to starting your own fund, you were you were not green anymore. You had been there and done it, really, has very well said, Joe. I think I feel exactly the same. I think all those roles were great opportunities for me to train as an entrepreneur. I still remember my last role when I began in Apollo. It was a foundation. And uh, when they asked me to grow it and, you know, uh, I had to struggle to pay off salaries at some point in time. Eventually, I had the backing of Apollo, but I had to struggle. Like, I was very worried. Like, if I don't get in enough business, how do I pay my folks, uh, the 150 people that I was working with and how do I give them increments? How do I defend? So I went through those uh, fires and it prepared me very well. But at the same time, I enjoyed also my journey and you're so right. Uh, I think it prepared me for this. Um, here also, I think, uh, you know, I had never done fundraising and stuff, which is a very painful process, to be honest. Mm. Uh, you know, going and uh, pitching a story, not having a product by itself, but it's a story, right? I mean, it's a it's a concept that you're building a fund, you will invest in XYZ and um, you will probably be able to get return some, um, you know, benefits to 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 the LPs. Um, I've never done this before, but uh, it was a fun ride so far. Um, I love, I, like I said, I really love what I do now. Yeah, it's, uh, and, it, and it shows. I mean, your interest in the technology and the uh, the impact that that technology can have is, uh, is really um, great to hear. Um, a bit more of a philosophical question. Um, many, there are, not many, but there are socialized healthcare systems around the world, for instance, in the UK with the NHS. Um, what do you, do you feel are the kind of ethics of private capital in building healthcare systems? Ethics uh, of... Yeah, in, in, in the sense of, um, you know, the, the uh, interests of uh, public healthcare aligned with the incentive of private capital? I mean, um, look, we we clearly need more public health uh, at, a, at a uniform standard available to people. But we've also seen, look, um, completely going, the, the current models of public health care has only um, not worked, really. If you see, it worked. And it didn't work. It, you know, even in NHS, if you take yeah. it, you know, NHS was a beautiful system. But as you load it more and more uh, to a more of a public health system, offering more to their uh, consumers, it went bankrupt, right? On the other hand, you take a completely capitalistic system like the US, that's also not the way to go. We also learned that that's probably the worst system as well. Because, mm -hmm. You know, for every little thing, a cost adds up and at the end of it, it has become unaffordable in the US. So even though they talk about a lot of insurance uh, for the US consumers, you should actually double click and see the, the insurance only covers very little yeah. um, vast swathes of populations in the US as well. So I think there is a and in India, of course, it's been like, you know, completely out of pocket to some insurance coming in now, um, Indonesia getting in some insurance now. Um, so the Ayushman Bharat is a great initiative that is there. But I think there is a robust, uh, there has to be a, some balance. I, I, I don't think infrastructure or resource wide, we will ever be able to bridge the gap, which is currently there in terms of providing adequate amount of healthcare, which is there. Um, it's not possible right now. And that is why a technology intervention is happening right now with telemedicine and all of these. 
um, you know, aspects of disruption coming in. Um, at some point in time, there'll be a good balance between private and public health, which has to be there. Uh, private actually brings in a lot of, uh, um, um, uh, private actually brings in a lot of quality um, in places where public health systems are struggling, exactly a case in point like India. Um, and public is actually leading the way in places like UK, but then they need to stay competitive and sustainable. And that's also a, a issue. I mean, um, so again, I think both have to survive. I don't know if it answers your question. No, but, it, it um, does. It's just that, uh, you know, you gave good examples there of um, uh, the extremes of both ends. Uh, and there's 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 problems in both. So the the hybrid type model is probably uh, the one that will be most workable, and particularly with some of these kind of innovations that you mentioned, um, the private capital is what will probably drive those, which is what organisations like yours are doing. Yep, I guess so. I hope to sort of be that hybrid, uh, trying to create something with private and public. Uh, that would be amazing, uh, you know, to to create something like that. And uh, one of the models that I really like is Kaiser Permanente in US. Um, it's inclusive, it's pervasive. Um, and uh, so they build in insurance, they build in accessibility, they build in affordability, all of it uh, together. Um, and, uh, you know, no matter where you walk across um, in the Kaiser system across US, you get almost, you know, you know the patient wherever you go. So there's interoperability. Um, you have the data of that patient, you have standardized protocols. So you won't like go from one hospital in one country to another and get a differential protocol. The protocols will be same. So, and that's the assurance a patient needs, to be yes. honest. And if you just take out the Kaiser word, this is the real system, uh, you know, that we should actually have in a country where, um, you know, it is, um, uh, it is competitive, yet it is standardized and uh, it is covered by insurance and it is interoperable. So no matter where you go, it should not differentiate. Uh, one last word I'll leave here is uh, value-based care is a big um, sort of solution that has come in uh, over time and it has to find its way into our settings, especially in the developing world also, where, you know, uh, money is actually given to doctors when value is actually... Uh, uh, value has been delivered rather than money has been given because the transaction has been done, you know. Um, so it's not on if you've done a surgery um, that the transaction gets done and the money gets paid. It's actually uh, if value has been delivered and a good outcome has come, then yep. the money transaction should happen. And I think US has led that way out there in that. So that incentivizations, etc. should be aligned in that sense where if value is delivered, you should incentivize these people and that incentive should be all pervasive to the team and, the, you know, the doctor and team and the hospital, all of those. Um, and that sort of keeps them in check as well to get the ethics part of it um, in place, which you touched upon to begin your question with, you know. So I think value-based care has to find its way and a hybrid between public and uh, private has to be there. Um, um, yeah, that's probably it. Fantastic. Well, I think there has been um, quite a lot of coverage in this because throughout your career history, you obviously learned different skills along the way. Uh, you kind of built up your 
entrepreneurial chops while you were still employed, which is probably the best way to do it, actually. So that when you finally uh, were running your own thing, so as to say, um, you were ready. And, you know, you've, your career has crossed consulting, um, technology, and, you know, now into the finance sector with investing. Um, it's it's very inspirational to know that people can, can cross these uh, domains and be successful in all of them. So um, I think people will learn a lot from that. So thank you very much, uh, Seamus Jahari. Where can people uh, find out about you? I guess you're on LinkedIn and uh, and so on with HealthX Capital, right? That's right. No, so LinkedIn is there. My profile is there. So um, um, one can find out or reach out to me um, anytime. Yeah. Um, and I'm very, thanks for this opportunity, Joe. It was fantastic talking to you after 17 years. Yeah, and, absolutely. Yeah, and uh, you know, I learned from this conversation as well because some of the questions were, uh, you know, uh, I had to probe uh, some of the things in the past and, and and then answer them. I think they were very fascinating way that you articulated some of those questions. So thank you, thank you very much. Pleasure to be here. Thank you very much, Simon. Thanks very much. Bye bye. All right, Joe. Stay in touch. Bye-bye.